Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and brain function, brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Pete Stabenoa, a clinical neuropsychologist and host for today's episode on learning disabilities. Our listeners are in for a treat today as our guest is Dr. Cheryl Silver. Dr. Silver is a pediatric neuropsychologist with 40 years experience evaluating children, adolescents, and young adults. She's a licensed psychologist and licensed specialist in school psychology in Texas. Her first professional experience after graduating from college in 1973 was remedial teaching in a special classroom for children with learning disabilities. And Dr. Silver tells me that this eye-opening experience helped to direct her career choices. She wanted to learn more about why some children struggle so hard to learn to read and to do math. Dr. Silver went on to earn her PhD from the University of Texas at Austin in 1986 and did postdoctoral training at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. She was invited to join UT Southwestern's core teaching faculty and remained there until she retired from the faculty in 2017. She's currently semi-retired and retains a small clinical practice. Dr. Silver is former president of the National Academy of Neuropsychology and neuropsychology representative to the Council of Representatives of the American Psychological Association. I could go on and on, but we need to talk about learning disabilities. So welcome, Dr. Silver. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be a part of the group of people who are contributing to the NAN Foundation's podcast series. Well, thank you so much, and we're so lucky to have you today. So let's just kind of jump right into it. I want to start with kind of the most basic question, which is simply, what is a learning disability? Well, a learning disability is usually thought of as a specific problem in learning. You might say a narrow problem in learning in a person who otherwise has good intelligence. Usually, we think of a learning disability occurring in poor academic functions, mainly reading, math, and written language. And written language we think of as spelling and then being able to communicate in writing. There's some confusion because over the years, I've heard parents talk about their children who have a more overall deficit in thinking and intelligence, and they call that a learning disability. And that can be kind of confusing. Someone who has that kind of intellectual disability or what we used to call mental retardation certainly has a disability that affects learning. But when the term learning disability first came into use in probably the 1960s, it was called a specific learning disability. And I like to think of it in that way, in that it affects specific areas of learning, not overall learning. Okay. So what you're saying is any learning problem could be a learning disability, but not all struggles with learning are representative of a learning disability. Exactly. So then what are the signs that a child might have a specific learning disability? I think about things that are early learning signs that end up being associated with later learning disabilities that parents might want to watch for. And probably the primary thing is that if a child has trouble in early language development, in spoken language, because of what the brain has to do to interpret auditory information and make sense of it, match it up to the vocabulary that kids learn. If kids are having trouble with spoken language, there's a suggestion there that they're going to have trouble with written language later, including reading and spelling. With 
the little ones too, if parents notice that they have trouble learning to sequence, if they have trouble understanding that Tuesday comes after Monday and Wednesday comes after Tuesday, that sometimes portends problems in understanding the sequences of sounds or the sequences of numbers that we have to learn for those core academic functions. Parents will often play rhyming games with kids. Kids like to do rhyming games. And if a parent notices that their child doesn't quite get how the sounds are the same, that might be a red flag for later learning disabilities. Or if a child has trouble with that idea, a is for apple and b is for boy and k is for cat, that might be a, a red flag for later learning disabilities. When a child then gets into school, a lot of times parents will notice that if there are reading passages where the same word appears a couple of times, if the child can't seem to catch that word and they'll see the word a second time and they won't pronounce it the same way as the first time, then that would worry me that their visual memory for words is problematic and that could turn into a learning disability later. And then, there, you know, going back to the idea that if a child is doing well in learning overall in their daily life, but they have a specific problem in reading or in math that stands alone as very different from the rest of their learning, that could be a sign of, of a specific learning disability. Okay. And I think that's a really important concept that this idea that a learning disability sounds like it really represents something that kind of stands out. Like it's not just a broad, general child is slow to develop, slow to learn lots of things. It's really, it sounds pretty specific in that it should stand out to parents among other areas where the child is, seems to be developing normally and, and otherwise competently. Exactly. Okay. Well, so I want to stick a little bit with terminology here because I know that the field of learning disabilities, there's lots of words that parents are going to hear that may end up getting confusing. So can you talk a little bit about terms including dyslexia, dyscalculia, and dysgraphia? Sure. So those terms come from the medical field. I think that's the important thing to think about. And so for more than a century, physicians have been interested in looking at adults who lose the capacity to read or who lose the capacity to calculate. And then they became more interested in children who have struggles to develop the ability to read or calculate. And so they use those old medical terms, dyslexia being struggling in learning to read, dyscalculia being struggles in learning how to calculate or do math, and then dysgraphia being struggles with putting written ideas on paper. It was only in the middle of the 20th century that educators came up with the term learning disabilities rather than the medical terms. And they're the terms we use today for, and I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but for children or even adults to get services to help them with their academic struggles, they have to get services under the legal term of learning disabilities because that's what's in the federal law that gives rights to individuals with learning disabilities. Okay. So it's, it's a pretty clear diagnosis that again, kind of stands out. It's, it's a learning problem in a specific area and there are clear, it's a clear kind of medical and educational diagnosis. Right. And with pretty strict definitions. Okay. So then 
I've heard lots of parents use the term learning difference. Can you kind of place that into context for us relative to learning disability? Yeah. So, you know, we have to think about the fact that no two human brains are alike. Although we all have many basic brain parts and connections that are the same, small differences do happen. And, you know, small differences might get reflected in somebody who's better at sports than somebody else or better at math than somebody else or the other way around, somebody who's worse at math or worse at at sports. Small differences occur in brain development that make that happen. And the differences can be genetic. So they could be passed down from parents or grandparents. Those brain differences could happen because of toxic exposure in pregnancy, like to alcohol or to lead or some other substance. And sometimes the brain develops in a slightly unusual way and no one will ever know why. So there are always those differences. If the differences are more than just the average amount of differences between human beings or the expected amount, then they can create problems in learning at school when the kiddo is presented with the typical teaching methods. I would say that's when a learning difference becomes a learning disability, when it actually causes impairment Mm, in in an important function. And like any disability, that's when the child needs help. Got it. Okay. So then what about in other school subjects? You know, kids don't just learn reading, math, writing. They go to science. They go to social studies. Can you have a disability in in one of those school subject areas? No, I would say theoretically you can't. And and in terms of legal definitions of learning disabilities, you can't. So a child might have trouble, or an adult for that matter, might have trouble learning history dates and important political movements and things like that. We don't think of that as a learning disability, but what might be the cause is a reading disability that then makes it harder for the child to process the information in the textbooks that he or she has to learn in order to get the history curriculum or get the science curriculum. Okay. I think that's a really important point that you're making because you know, if we think about learning disabilities as you've described them, the manifestations can be really far-reaching. You know, it sounds like, I mean, it doesn't just affect reading or math or writing that can play into other school subjects and I'm assuming other areas of the person's life. Right. Because reading is such an important part, in our culture anyway, reading is such an important part of managing our daily activities and so is math. Yep. Well, what causes learning disabilities? Well, learning disabilities happen, as I said, as a result of differences in the way the brain develops and the way that certain parts of the brain work. So if you think about reading, most of us learn to read in the same way and at the same pace because reading is so necessary in our society. Doctors, as I said earlier, scientists have tried to study these differences for many decades. And they know now that for most people, a small part of the brain in the middle of the left side of the brain, or what we call the left hemisphere, has to function well in order for us to learn to read easily. If that part didn't develop correctly during prenatal life, it can cause a learning disability. And as I said, most kids with reading disabilities do tend to have a left hemisphere problem, although there's a small percentage of kids with reading disabilities who seem to have a glitch 
in the visual timing of their brain. And then that can create problems in identifying words, seeing and interpreting what's on the written page. So that's reading. People have been interested in reading because it's such an important function for more than a century. Math has had a whole lot less research directed toward it. And because we need to know symbols like numbers that represent quantities, and we need to be able to understand how quantities relate to each other, like tens and ones and hundreds, they're probably less discrete and more various parts of the brain that could go wrong to create a math disability. So I would say we know less about math disabilities than we know about reading disabilities. But it comes down to not being a motivation problem, not being an emotional or psychological problem, but definitely research has shown that there are differences in the brains of children and adults who have specific learning disabilities. Okay, so then if I suspect, let's say, that my child has a learning disability or may have a learning disability, how do I go about getting that diagnosed? The parent, or if it's an adult who suspects that they have a learning disability, they need to find somebody who has been trained in how to do assessment. And assessment really needs to cover testing in the areas of intellectual functioning, memory, something we call processing, which is how your brain interprets auditory information, how your brain interprets visual information. And then, of course, a very solid, comprehensive look at how the child or the adult does academic functioning. So in order to get someone who does that kind of testing, I often tell parents to check with their public school and explain the problems. And maybe the teachers have already seen evidence of a problem and ask the school to please provide an evaluation. Now, schools are overwhelmed and they don't have enough staff. So sometimes it can take a while and parents have to decide if they're okay to wait because if the public school does it, it's absolutely free. Now, parents can go to private evaluations where they'll be paying out of pocket for it. Most likely, they'll be able to get those evaluations sooner. One thing I tell parents that they need to know is insurance companies often will not pay for that kind of private evaluation. The insurance companies say, we cover medical problems and learning to read and learning to do math and learning to spell are not medical reasons. Parents can talk with their pediatricians to find out where they might find private evaluators. They could go to their psychology department in a local university, for example, or in a local hospital. They could go to their local psychological association. And they can network with other parents because parents, I find, are very willing to share with other parents who they've found to be good evaluators and bad evaluators for the purpose of of identifying learning disabilities. So speaking of evaluators, what kinds of professionals should parents be looking for? Well, that's a good question. First of all, I think I'd be correct in saying that it's rare for somebody who has a bachelor's degree in psychology or education to have sufficient training to diagnose a learning disability. People with master's degrees in education or psychology will often have the training, but not always. It depends on the training program and the experiences, the supervised experiences they had. So it's always good to ask, to find out the extent of somebody's 
experience. It's kind of the same thing at a doctoral level. So a psychologist with a PhD or an educator with a PhD or an EDD degree might very well have all the training that's involved to be able to accurately diagnose a learning disability. But some people come through doctoral programs without that particular specialty. So you do have to be sure that you've asked about their qualification. Okay. So then let's say that the learning disability is diagnosed. And so now we need to manage, we need to intervene, we need to make it better. What do we do? So having a good evaluation with documentation so the parents need to get a written report and the evaluator needs to know how to define the problem so that it meets the qualifications for considering it to be a learning disability. And As I said a bit ago, there are strict definitions for that. The definitions are different state to state. So evaluators in a state should know what's required in their state, and parents need to ask about that too. Once a child is identified as having a learning disability, if they're in a public school, sometimes the public school will provide tutoring that just is a little bit more than what's done in the regular classroom. Sometimes the schools will provide specialized tutoring if the learning disability is a little bit more severe. So it might be a commercial program that the school has purchased and they have trained specific teachers to use this program to teach the fundamentals of reading or reading comprehension or math to the child. In very severe situations, I know that most cities, not so much small towns, unfortunately, but most cities have private schools that are devoted to children with learning differences or learning disabilities. And so if parents have the means or if the school has scholarships, parents with children who have severe learning disabilities can go to these special schools. So that's the tutoring part. The other part in many school situations is to provide what are called accommodations. And that means if a child, for example, really has trouble reading Let's try to even the playing field and get that child over the hump of the struggle so that they're getting the instructional and information like the other kids who don't have reading disabilities. So that might mean something like getting audio recordings of the books so that the children don't have to slug through the reading, but they can have the books read to them. Sometimes children with reading disabilities have trouble on tests. So schools will give them extra time to take tests because maybe they're slower at reading. And if they have the extra time, then they can show what they know. So there's kind of the treatment part, which is tutoring, and then the accommodations part, which is changing the environment to help the child. I see. So particularly thinking about those accommodations, that suggests that there's chronic nature, like a persistent nature to learning disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about prognosis or just kind of what the developmental trajectory is for children that do experience learning disabilities? Yes. So, you know, we're kind of at an interesting crossroads. Maybe crossroads isn't the right word, but just an interesting time in that there's a program of research that's been building that shows that because the brain is not static, that even in adulthood, the brain can change and connections in the brain can improve. But especially in in childhood, there are some 
effective programs that are being developed that involve computer work. One I'm thinking about involves changing and slowing down the sounds of words that can train a child's brain to catch sounds and sequence of sounds that maybe their brain doesn't do naturally, so that there are ways of actually changing the brain that can make a great deal of difference. What I need to say in this context is there are also a number of people out there, businesses, who see a great way to make money, and they will develop programs that may not have very much research behind them. And so parents have to be careful about spending money and time and effort involved in programs that are supposed to cure dyslexia or cure dyscalculia. But there are programs like that that have a research basis. And the other thing I would say with regard to prognosis is that children and adults will figure out their own ways to compensate. So with accommodations and with maturation and learning their own ways to accommodate, I wouldn't say that people ever grow out of learning disabilities, but I think you use the word manage. They learn to manage their learning disabilities so that they can be quite successful in whatever career choice they decide on. Yeah, so that really, I guess, speaks then to the resilience and the need for the kinds of supports and interventions and accommodations that you're describing throughout childhood so that kids can maintain that resilience and figure those pathways out for themselves so that they are able to be successful, perhaps even in spite of something that may affect them potentially lifelong. Right. And actually, you're saying that brings to mind, too, that early diagnosis and early support means that the child understands that he or she has this difference and that it's not that they're dumb. And it kind of circumvents, early support circumvents the child developing, you know, serious problems with self-concept and anxiety about schoolwork because they don't understand why they're not functioning like the other kids. So when you talk about early support, I think that's something that's very important. Yeah, I think that's such a great point because I think that sometimes kids will look across the aisle and whoever's reading the fastest is the smartest. And if they're not reading as quickly or finishing their tests as quickly, well, then they they may internalize that in a self-esteem way, the way you're describing. Right. Okay, and then just one final question. I want to ask about ADHD. We haven't talked at all about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and yet that's such a common diagnosis that children have during childhood. Is that a learning disability? I'm glad you brought up that question. The simple answer is no. In the same way we started this podcast talking about learning disabilities being narrow and specific and not being an overall problem with intelligence. Learning disabilities are specific and they have to do with specific academic areas like reading and math. And we know that there's a brain basis that relates to specifically the function of reading or specifically the function of math. ADHD is a disorder that can affect learning in a major way, but not because of these brain differences that create problems with written language or numbers. But it's a a pervasive condition that affects a child's ability to pay attention. So yes, it can lead to learning problems, but no, it is not a kind of learning disability. 
Okay, so I understand. It's kind of like some of those other broader processes, intelligence, other other things that may impede learning. It may certainly manifest as a learning problem, but it's not the same as what you've described as a very specific learning disability that has clear criteria to separate it from other things like that. Right. Okay, well, that wraps up our podcast for today. And I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Cheryl Silver, and I want to thank all our listeners. For more information about the NAN Foundation and neuropsychology, please visit nanfoundation.org. And be sure to follow our BrainBeat podcast on Twitter at BrainBeatPod. Pod.